lot to say about that uh, piece to uh, Chris and our music and worship ministry is this. Did you pick up on that? That's the sign for amen. Marvelous. And I think the girl doing sign language is really cute. <laughs> my goodness. Guess uh, that's my wife, by the way, okay? Yeah. Let me invite your attention to Nehemiah chapter 3. Nehemiah chapter 3. There are a large number of groups and names here. There's not much narrative. There's a lot of repetition. But this is going to be one of the most interesting passages of Scripture at which you have ever, ever looked. And uh, I want to uh, make sure that you understand that. And we're going to be real clear uh, about that. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 3. Now the Bible teaches a doctrine of work. A doctrine of work. How we go about our work for the glory of God. One element of it is stewardship. God owns everything and he places us in charge to manage it. So he owns, we manage. He puts us in, in places of responsibility. And that's not merely in the church, but that's also in our vocations, our homes, our neighborhoods, everywhere. So he owns everything. He owns our breath. He owns our life. He owns our skills. He owns our talents. He owns our bank accounts. He owns our possessions. He owns our, uh, everything about us, our vocation as well. And so God owns it, and he places us in places to manage these things, to magnify his son, Jesus Christ, and to advance his name around the world. So first is stewardship. Second happens to be means. God has some means by which he gets his things done, and that's human means. It stuns me that he uses us. It would make more sense to me to use angels, but that doesn't make sense to him. He uses us. He uses human means to get these things done. And then the third thing happens to be all that we do is under his review. All that we do is for his glory. All that we do is to magnify his name. The Anabaptist in the 16th century, in fact, had, and I'm not judging you, by the way, or myself, uh, I, I could use some improvement in this area myself, but the Anabaptist in the 16th century had a hard time believing people were Christians if they didn't keep their homes clean because everything was to be done for the glory of God. And if it wasn't glorious to him, it put in question their faith in the minds of the Anabaptist. By the way, do you know who the Anabaptists are today? The Amish and the Mennonites and the Baptists. Uh, the Baptists have strayed. <laughs> but the Amish and the Mennonites really have got tight control over everything they own and over everything they operate. So everything is to be done for the glory of God. God is to get glory over everything. Not just those things that take place in the church. Not just the preaching and the praying and the worship and the singing and the giving. But everything in life, including our vocation, how we run our marriage, how we operate our family, how we engage in all areas of life, it is to glorify God. And that is what uh, the doctrine of work teaches us. We find that here in the text in Nehemiah chapter number three. And it does remind me, by the way, of the group of men from a church that got together one day and they went to paint uh, a senior adult's home. And they got there and they began to paint it and they, they finished their task, or at least they thought so, when someone discovered that a piece of the trim was not painted. But you couldn't see the unpainted trim from the ground. 
And one fellow remarked, well, let's forget about it. No need. We're done because you can't, no one can see it. And someone in the group responded, God sees it. Let's finish it. And that is the heart and soul of the doctrine of work. And that's precisely what you find in this text. Here with Nehemiah and all of these groups and all of these names, they labored and they labored hard to glorify God even in grunt work. You know what grunt means, don't you? You know what grunt work is? It may be menial work, repetitive, boring, no prestige, no limelight. That's what you have here in the text. This is the kind of work in which they engage and they give glory to God. Now I want to read just one verse here in the text that demonstrates someone that was not committed to glorifying God in grunt work. And this happens to be the aristocrats of the Tekoites. Not those from Tekoa, but those here in the text that were descendants of Tekoa. Verse number five. Next to them, the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of their Lord. In other words, they are building the walls around Jerusalem. They complete the task in 52 days because they're glorifying God. But there is this group of Tekoites the aristocrats, the nobles of the Tekoites, who do, do not engage in this work. The good news this morning is this. You can glorify God and make an impositive impression about the name of Jesus anywhere you are if you will glory in grunt work. And so I want to speak on the subject this morning, the glory of grunt work. And there's some values here that will help us glorify God even in grunt work. And the first value is this. Every person involved. Every person involved. I'd like to ask about church work, for example. We are a church that believes everyone is to be actively involved in serving in some place, shape, or form according to their gifts, their skills, their opportunities, and the needs. And the question we should ask is, what kind of church would my church be if everyone served just like me. In other words, if everyone attended like I attend, what would my church be? If everyone witnessed like I witnessed, what would my church be? If everyone gave like my church gave, what would my, what would my church be like in that case? That's a question we need to ask in order to set a good example. Now, in this text, there are 38 names in chapter 3. There are 48 different groups who are all engaged in the work. In verse 1, there are the priests. In verse 8, the goldsmiths are the craftsmen. In verse 8 also, even the perfumers, those who manufactured perfume. Then in verse 9, the rulers. Verse 12, the women got involved in rebuilding the walls. In verse 31, the merchants. Now I want you to notice in verses 4 and 11, there are some here that even involve themselves despite the past of their family and some of the shame and failure and reproach their family brought onto their name. In verse number 4, you find the name Merimoth. And in verse 11, you find the name Malchijah, who repairs another section. If you look back at the book of Ezra, especially chapter 10, verse 30, you will find that their grandfathers wrecked their marriages and disobeyed the law of God to where they were severely chastised by Ezra. And they brought shame upon Israel. 
They brought reproach upon their family name. But a couple of generations later, what has happened is that they have been reclaimed by the grace and the goodness of God, and now they're being used by God to build the walls around Jerusalem. That's what God can do. Listen to me. Listen, sweet people. There is nothing about your past. There is nothing about your present that can keep you from being used in the future by God if you'll trust his grace. Nothing at all. A.B. Simpson put it this way. Now, this is a lengthy quote, but I, I couldn't cut anything out of it. I have to read it all. He said, Jesus is able to save the lost, to pardon the guiltiest soul, to cleanse the darkest heart, to renew the most ruined life. He is able to fill the heart of sorrow with untroubled gladness. He's able to take away the strongest tendencies to sin and give the degraded soul the power to do that which is right. He is able to satisfy our inmost, utmost being. He is able to put his own heart in the most corrupt soul. He is able to meet the temptations that overcome us and to make us more than conquerors in all things through his love. He is able to make even our little lives mighty forces for everlasting good and so clothe us with this power that we shall be able to open blind eyes, turn others from darkness into light and from the very power of Satan to God. He is greater than the greatest difficulty, the greatest sin, the greatest sorrow, the greatest failure in your life. There is no, there is nothing that can keep you from being used by God if you'll trust his grace. Nothing at all. Listen, when you struggle with that, when you feel unworthy to serve, stop looking at your sin. Stop looking at your shame. Stop looking at your failure and look at the greatness of God because your past, your sin, your shame, your failure, even present circumstances are not the measure by which God measures your future in service. God is. God is. That's how you can be used. And so every person involved, we need everyone involved for next Sunday too. Hey, have you ever made a friend? Do you have a friend? Can you pray? Can you invite? Then you can be used greatly of God to change someone's eternity if you'll work with us for next Sunday. Every person involved. But there's a second thing. Not only every person involved, but every task valued. Every task valued. Let me ask you this question. Do you uh, remember the name Leon Trotsky? Leon Trotsky. Leon Trotsky uh, visited a Sunday school in Chicago in 1915. He went there for Bible teaching. Uh, this Russian man was invited to church there. And when he showed up in Sunday school, the teacher did not show up. Failed to show up. Leon Trotsky missed the opportunity to have the Bible, the Word of God, the life-changing Word of God taught to him. How history may have been different. Because Leon Trotsky was the one that joined with Vladimir Lenin to launch the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917, and to create a movement that was responsible for the death of a hundred million people around the world. And the Sunday school teacher that had the opportunity to teach the life-changing Word of God did not show up two years before the revolution. Ladies and gentlemen, small things make a big difference. Grunt work can make a big difference. Now, in chapter 3 of Nehemiah, you find 77 references in just the 32 verses, 77 references to words like build, repair, made, and fortified. 
And then you find 45 references to nuts. That's the kind you work with, not the people. Nuts, bolts, bars, walls, beams, towers, and gates. There's a lot of grunt work that has to take place, ordinary tasks that must be completed for this to get done in the 52 days in which they built it. Now look at verses 13 and 14. There's more. There's more than the action, and there's more than the material. Look what they did in verse 13. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zenoa repaired the valley gate. They built it, hung its doors with bolts and bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the refuse gate. In verse 14, they repaired the refuse gate. Now, um, what's a refuse gate? Some of your translations use another word. Kind of gross, isn't it? The refuse gate is where they pulled all the refuse and the waste, human and otherwise, outside the city of Jerusalem and took it to a dump. The Valley of Hinnon, where Jesus would preach later and call it the Valley of Gehenna, a sign from hell. So they are carrying nasty, filthy refuge outside the city that when Jesus saw it, five, six hundred years later, he thought of hell. That's what you've got. In this text, the refuse gate. In other words, there are people taking out the trash, taking out the waste. So you've got the materials, you've got the actions, you've got refuse being taken care of. There is grunt work taking place here. By the way, 1981, there was an attempt by John Hinckley to take the life of our president, President Reagan. He nearly got him, nearly did. Uh, the uh, bullet shrapnel was just a few millimeters from the man's heart. Well, he was in the hospital for some time and, and, and recovered. And despite that, the nation and the government continued to run as it always had. It, it could afford to have the president in the hospital. And that's what happened. The nation just continued. I remember in 1981, after President Reagan had that assassination attempt, I got up out of the bed. I got ready, I got clean, and I went for another day of my junior year in high school. Actually, it was sophomore, the end of my sophomore year when uh, the attempt was made. Nothing changed about my life. But around the same time that President Reagan suffered that attempt on his life, the sanitation workers of Philadelphia went on strike and would not pick up the trash until their demands were met. Do you know what happened to the city of Philadelphia? There was garbage and smell and nastiness all over. You see, the nation could run with the president being in the hospital, but Philadelphia could not run with the sanitation workers on strike. That is the value of every bit of work. And God wants us to value every work that is legal and right and moral. Every task is to be valued. God does great things through small works. So they've always got to be valued. In other words, a work to be important does not necessarily have to be prestigious. It doesn't necessarily have to be public. It doesn't have to necessarily have what humans call power. In fact, I would say to you, workplace or other place, always be careful of people who are campaigning for power. Be extremely careful of people who say to themselves or indicate 
You know, if I ran the show, it would be a lot better. When I became a pastor, I went from the youth ministry to the pastorate. And I had a real serious crisis the first few months I was in the pastorate. It was personal. I didn't say much to anybody. But I have never gotten over this. I am still struggling with this today. It occurred to me. It occurred to me. That when I stood up with the word of God. And I preached the Bible. People believed what I was saying. They were counting on me to go before God and to get direction in His Word and to deliver it about their lives, their marriages, their families, their futures, their eternity. It struck me. It struck me down. It made me desperate in prayer. I've never gotten over that. I don't pray, by the way, and I pray a whole lot. I've got to. But I don't pray because I'm spiritual. I pray because I'm desperate. Because when I stand up before these sweet people, most of them are going to believe everything I say. And I have to have a word from God. I have to have His direction. They believe me. So let me say, to those who want power, who think they could run it better if they were in charge. Let me ask you something. Why would you want any more power than what you've got now? Why? Why would you want any more authority? Do you understand? When you have more power and more authority, more people depend on you. More people count on you. You can wreck more people's lives. People who want more power and campaign for it probably don't need it. Be very, very careful of people who want more power, more authority, especially if that person is yourself. If a promotion is offered to you, great. But think through it, pray through it, and ask God, God, do I have the character? Do I have the prayer life to take on this responsibility? Do I have what it takes to execute the duties of this and not wreck other people's lives? Do I have it? I don't think anyone should jump at a promotion. They need to plead with God. They need to seek godly counsel. They need to do a face plant in the Word of God and get direction from God. Every task has got to be valued, even the small tasks. Uh, And I I want to encourage you, though, if you can make a friend, if you can pray, if you can invite others to be here Sunday, those are small tasks, and God can change in eternity if you'll exercise them. Well, there's a third value, and that is every effort made. Hey, about a year ago, do you remember Aretha Franklin passing away? She's R-E-S-B-E-C-T, find out. Don't tip me. Don't mess with me. All right. Well, when she passed away at the age of 76, they arranged her funeral, and the way the funeral unfolded was this way. 
There were three days of public viewing of Aretha Franklin. Day one, she wore an outfit. The second day, they changed that outfit. And the third day, they changed her outfit. When they proceeded from the viewing to the service, uh, it was attended by 100 pink Cadillacs. And her casket was made of ivory and gold plated. And she didn't know what in the world was going on. She had no idea. I want to ask you, if they would be that enthusiastic about Aretha Franklin, what about Jesus? Is it possible, sweet people, that we can give Jesus our best? With the guidance of his word and spirit, is there anything he's not worthy of? I mean, can't we give him our all? Can't we give him our best energies everywhere we go? Is Jesus worthy? Is he worthy of extravagant love? Is he worthy of extravagant faith? Is he worthy of extravagant giving? Is he worthy of extravagant service? Oh, yes, he is. Crucified, buried, risen from the dead. You bet Jesus is worthy of that kind of extravagance. And while it may not make sense to some on this uh, terracotta, it makes sense in heaven where he is now. Because where he is now, he's being exalted extravagantly. Every effort is made around that throne to magnify him and to lift him up and to make sure there's not one square millimeter anywhere in that place that doesn't give its best to his name. And may it be that way here. May it be that way here. Now, I'm not making that up. It's in the text. Chapter 3, verse 20. Baruch rebuilt a gate carefully, zealously, earnestly. And they did it without benefits. In chapter 3, verse 2, 5, 7, 13 through 18, there are several cities that come to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, though they live outside the city in some other town, hamlet, or village. They're not benefiting personally from the rebuilding of the walls. They do it without personal benefit. Oh God, give us more people who don't care if they get the credit or benefit. They just want to do God's work. Without benefit. Without support. Chapter 3, verse 5. The Tekoite nobles did not join with their common people to rebuild the gates. They didn't join in the work. Hey, has it struck you like it struck me? These Tekoite nobles had one chance to show up in the Bible. <laughs> And it says they didn't do any work. One chance to be in the Bible and they blew it. Hey, well, they didn't know. You don't know either. You don't know when you're going to show up in someone's story. You don't know when you're going to show up in someone's report. You don't know. You don't know when you're going to show up in the faculty lounge. And profs will talk about you. You don't know when you're going to show up in the break room. And people talk about the low quality of work. You, you just never know. The Tekoites had one chance to be in the Bible. And now for 2,500 years, they are known as the people who did not put their shoulders to the work of the Lord. Mm, 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 mm. You see, the mess we make lasts a whole lot longer than we anticipate. So they did it without uh, benefit, without support. And then they did it, it appears, without end. Chapter 3, verse 11 
Now, Kaiser repaired another section. He'd been working on one section. When he was done with that, he went and worked on another section. Constantly, continuously working. And that happens in verse 19, 21, 24, 27, and 30. Listen, here's how work should go. As Christians, we're not only concerned about policy and procedure manuals. We're not merely concerned with meeting the standard of employment wherever it is that we work. We're not merely concerned about that. Now, we need to excel at that, but we're not merely concerned about the job places, policy and procedure manual. We are concerned about many more things. And here's what we're concerned about. We're concerned about the character of God and His work. In other words, we ask ourselves the question, how does God go about His work? What kind of character qualities marks the work of God? Well, God's works are what? What words would you use? Would you agree? God's works are great. God's works are faithful. God's works are sacrificial. Are they not? Those are the works of God. That's how God goes about His own work. God makes every effort to redeem lost humanity and get the gospel all over the world. He makes every effort. God is extravagant in His work. So He's faithful. He's servant-oriented. He's true. He's awesome. So that's the character of God in His work. Therefore, that's the character of our work. We're not meeting the bare minimum of the policy and procedure manual. We're going beyond it to match the character of God and to do the work where we are just like God would if He were in our shoes. And if you know Jesus, He certainly is. See, every effort is made to glorify God and make people think really good things about Him. David did this in 2 Samuel 24, 24. He had to make a sacrifice. Someone offered him a free piece of property on which to build an altar for it. And David in 2 Samuel 24, 24 rejected the property. And here's what he said. I will not give unto the Lord that which costs me nothing. He's saying it's got to cost me something. I've got to feel it when I give to God. I've got to feel it when I serve. I've got to, I've got to give something to him. Every effort is made. The good news for you is that whenever you trust him and turn to him, every effort necessary, God will make to cleanse and remove your guilt. God will make every effort to fill you with his son. And from that point on, to shape you into the image of Jesus Christ to fill you with the Spirit and His fruit. That is what God will do. Listen to me. You come to Him today. Please, please hear me. You come to Him today, and God is going to make every effort to meet you in grace. He'll do it today if you'll come trusting Him. If you'll stop believing God can't love you. If you'll stop believing that your past is a chain that Jesus cannot break. If you'll stop believing that tomorrow can't be any better. If you'll start believing and trusting in Him, He will meet you. He will change you. Let me pray for you as you quickly stand with me, please. Father, I thank you in Jesus' name for the good news of the Word. Thank you that you've communicated it real clearly in Nehemiah chapter.